Hi, I'm Larry Gifford, and I have Parkinson's disease. So Christmas Day, uh, we found out that I was pregnant. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. And yeah. then how did the pregnancy go with Parkinson's? Uh, the pregnancy was really difficult. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me today is my partner in life and in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford. Hello. It's always good to be here. This episode is about women with Parkinson's. This is a population that is diagnosed less often, less accurately, and offered treatments that are less effective, often because hormonal cycles play a role. This is an area that's still rather unexplored regarding Parkinson's disease. We're going to hear from three women with Parkinson's who also experience pregnancy, giving birth, and parenting with PD. All their experiences were different, but certainly complicated by their Parkinson's. And all three took years to come to grips with their diagnosis and then become advocates for women like them. We are fortunate enough that one of these women is a friend, colleague, and a fellow advocate, Sonia Mather. Sonia was a family physician and pregnant with her first child when she was diagnosed at 27. She's a tireless advocate as a co-founder of the PD Avengers and co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. She sits on the board for the Davis Finney Foundation, the medical boards for the Bryant Grant Foundation and Parkinson Canada. She and her daughters have also written two children's books on Parkinson's. Sonia Mather, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. We're very grateful. And uh, <laughs> I, what I like is having somebody who's as busy as I am on the podcast so my <laughs> wife can see that I'm not a, a, a weirdo. Oh, I'll always make time for the both of you. <laughs> now, you are here to help us talk about the different experiences that women have living with Parkinson's and very especially YOPD women who get pregnant, give birth and become parents after diagnosis. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's really become more of a focus, uh, an issue that's become um, more of a focus recently. And I'm not really sure why that is, because it's really been an area of neglect for quite a long time, but it really is becoming sort of more, um, more looked at, which I think is a necessary thing. Sonia, how much do we really know from a research perspective about the experiences of women like you with YOPD? I wish I could say more than this, but not much, unfortunately. Um, I mean, we've always known that the incidence of Parkinson's disease is higher in men than women. And there's always been evidence to suggest that probably estrogen, you know, exposure to estrogen during our lifetime is probably protective in some way against the disease because women, you know, um, have a delayed um, age of onset and the number of pregnancies and, and how long those pregnancies, um, number of pregnancies are, are important in determining risk. But um, we don't know enough about it, unfortunately. And I think that's why we're here today. Yeah, at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto, I interviewed Amatola Thomas, and, and she was the really the first woman with YOPD who I had talked with, who shared openly that Cinemet, uh, the 50-plus-year-old gold standard drug for Parkinson's, <laughs> only worked three of four weeks of every month because of her cycle. And I was... I was blown away. I, I think every guy who heard her say it was like, what? what? That's a thing? Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. And, and Parkinsonism in some studies, the, the few that are there, seem to worse for women in the premenstrual period as the estrogen and progestin levels fall down in general. So maybe the meds are not as effective during that period of time. You'll find a couple of studies that say there isn't a link. So, But anecdotally, I mean, speaking with women in the community, I do find that a lot of women experience sort of 
you know, um, a couple of bad weeks every month because of because of their their hormone fluctuations. So it's definitely an issue that, that women with PD are facing. Larry and I, we were fortunate enough to watch a presentation in Kyoto by the Parkinson's Foundation. And in it, it was fascinating. It was a great presentation. And we learned that uh, women with PD who take the standard doses of Cinemet that they're used to prescribing to men are more susceptible to dyskinesia. Do we do we know why that is? Well, I mean, you're right, uh, Rebecca. I mean, although men may have more severe motor symptoms, women do seem to develop more levodopa-induced dyskinesia. And um, women also have a greater response to levodopa compared to men. It might be because of lower body weight or body size. That's a possibility. But it seems to go beyond that. And I think the, the levodopa just seems to work better in women. It's, it's more bioavailable to women. So it works better. But at the same time, you get the side effects of dyskinesia as well. So that's that's probably a, a mixed reason for that. Well, and it probably women uh, are more disciplined in taking their meds on time without protein. <laughs> you know, I, not the same thing about guys, but I know that sometimes I don't follow all the rules all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure most women are. I'm not one of them, unfortunately, and that's why I tend to, you know, <laughs> run away with my symptoms. But yes, I, I think you might be right about the organizational part of things. Uh, and the Parkinson Foundation also uh, found that women often experience larger swings in symptoms than men. Have you found that to be true? Um, again, it's it's pretty much all anecdotal. I mean, let's. This is sort of what we know about women and their symptoms. We seem to have more tremor. Um, our motor symptoms seem to emerge later. We seem to have um, a likelihood more to develop falls and postural instability. We have more non-motor symptoms like trouble swallowing and pain, more dyskinesias, as we mentioned, less cognitive issues, which may be why we take our medications on time <laughs> more so than men, um, more depression, more osteoporosis, and, and more changes in the menstrual cycle, obviously, in women, not, not men. Um, but, you know, the, the swings are probably there, but the, the, the point is we really don't know. And, and that's where the question lies. Is that because women haven't been participating in research or they haven't been invited to research? I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah, I am as well. <laughs> I think that, you know, um, I think it's probably a participation thing, but I also think it's um, it's it's a, a direction of research. I mean, the questions have to be asked in order for the research to, to go on. And I think the questions just haven't been asked. That's just been an area that hasn't been looked to and into enough. I mean, there's lots of women that would love to participate in research that um, has something to do with their issues specifically. I don't think we'd have a problem recruiting, but I think that we need to find the researchers to do the research. Now, is it possibly be because this is only affecting women who are still menstruating and the average age of onset of Parkinson's disease is 72 years or older. So we're really talking about, you know, what YOPD is 10 to 15% of Parkinson's. It's yeah. like a 40% of that. Right, exactly. We're looking at about 5% of people under the age of 40. And so um, I'm guessing pharmaceutical companies aren't seeing that as a viable market. Possibly. But I think we, we need to remember that anytime we see a discrepancy, either in a genetic issue or a gender issue, there are answers that lie within that discrepancy, right? So we could be um, discovering uh, the 
something to do with the pathology of the disease, which might help benefit the whole community as opposed to just the women involved. Um, so I think it's an important thing to do. The other thing is that just knowing about the gender inequality, it, it can change the management of, of, of women on existing therapies as well, if the questions are asked. But you're right about the uh, pharmaceutical reach. It probably doesn't um, add up in that way. Well, and it does seem sometimes odd, not from a marketing standpoint or a market standpoint, but most of the research being done will positively affect a large group of people, um, but the people who are perhaps less affected by the disease. So the people who are having more extreme experiences with the disease, more extreme symptoms and for longer periods of time are people that seem to be the least addressed, like YOPD and specifically women. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good observation. I, I think that, you know, in general, Parkinson's is more of a blanket term. I think eventually we're going to find that there's a whole spectrum of diseases that are defined as Parkinson's disease. So I think that's going to be teased out eventually. It does seem, though, that discussion around the topic of women and Parkinson's is increasing in intensity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there seem to be a lot of groups working in this area now, and many are support and educational, like the Davis Finney Foundation has monthly webinars now. Twitchy Women is another um, online support group that have regular meetings and educational events. There's a number of online blogs and resources, such as the one uh, started in Spain. And the Women's Parkinson's Project is another one which will be starting up soon. Um, the Parkinson's Foundation has created a national agenda to identify research and care practices that better capture the needs of women. WPC is working towards that as well. So, and so um, just to put you know, that into perspective, the PD Avengers, um, we're going to have a women in PD working group that's sort of going to bring all the collaborators together, as well as opening up communication between the community and the researchers to get you know, an idea of what questions need to be addressed and what areas need to be addressed. So to try and bring all those groups together to work as one instead of in their individual silos to help address these questions. Well, that's exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is an area that needs to be explored more and has been ignored. And uh, I think from the last WPC till now, um, you know, groups like the PD Avengers and Twitchy Women and, and you know, it really with the Parkinson's Foundation's presentation at that last right. WPC, it kind of launched this, hey, curiosity. I think now right. there's a curiosity and an intrigue around it. And it's sort of, it's a, it's the hot top. It's one of the hot topics right now in, in Parkinson's. Absolutely. Yes. I think it's a good time to introduce another person into this conversation. Larry, our friends at Parkinson Canada connected you to Caitlin Nagy. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Larry. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. So, like, nice to meet you, too. Caitlin is a 38-year-old mother, married, living in Toronto, who was diagnosed seven years ago. She's been hiding it from her friends, family, co-workers, until now. This is Parkinson's Awareness Month, and she is prominently featured telling her PD story in the Parkinson Canada No Matter What campaign. You take a listen. She's the first voice you'll hear, and she's heard several times throughout. It's uh, just uh, uh, 45 seconds. Nothing prepares you for Parkinson's. Nothing. Nothing. But no matter what they say. Life goes on. No matter what. 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 So I made a choice to make a difference. Because there is strength 
in numbers. There is hope in research. And there is support all around me. I want you to know I will never give up. I will always be there. I couldn't do it alone. I'm going to say it loud and proud. Parkinson's matters. I'm here. I am here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here trying my best. And I won't give up. No matter what. That's a pretty cool campaign. Very simple and powerful. We started our conversation uh, at the very beginning, uh, which I like to do, which is the search for a diagnosis. Six months after I saw the original neurologist, I went to see a doctor at Toronto Western. And it was it was interesting because I think there was a bit of a miscommunication between my doctor and her doctor because it sounded like she thought that I already knew that I had a Parkinsonism, um, but I didn't. So she said, if so, it's, you know, it's definitely uh, Parkinson's or Parkinsonism, but I want to do some genetic testing. And I was kind of like, what? No, I don't think so. That's that's not right. <laughs> I'm super stubborn and super determined. So I was like, I'm absolutely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent uh, the next five years trying to prove her wrong. <laughs> so did you win? I'm still working on it. I'm going to win. <laughs> Sonia, we hear stories all the time about doctors struggling to diagnose women with Parkinson's. It takes longer. There are a lot of misdiagnoses. Why do we think that is? You know, Rebecca, that's a great question. I, I think diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in general is is difficult, right? Because it's only based on clinical um, clinical. Um, judgment and, you know, filling out some forms and kind of looking at the scale. So in general, it's a difficult diagnosis. And then when you put on top of it that a lot of people can present with non-motor stuff first, like depression and sleep disorder and, and that sort of thing, that makes it even more complicated because I hate to say it, but a lot of time women are dismissed when they come in with these concerns as non-sort of specific you know, things that are going on in their life and the way they're feeling and, and kind of more dismissed um, as being in your head kind of situation, which is, you know, not good. And, and as women, I think we're, we're more likely to advocate strongly or push strongly when it comes to our loved ones. You know, we sort of tend to be last on our list. So I don't think we advocate as strongly for ourselves as well. Um, so I think it's a matter of the non-specific nature of, of most of our presentations and and also the fact that, you know, in general, I think we need to be louder in terms of letting our physicians know that, you know what, I it's not in my head. I'm really, you know, noticing these things. A lot of people talk about how when they are given their, their actual diagnosis, oftentimes it comes with this cold bedside manner of this sort of matter of fact, here you go, you've got Parkinson's. Uh, on your way, here's some cinnamon. And um, is that changing? Yeah, I, I do think it is. I, I do think that the, the, the medical community is moving more towards patient-centered care as opposed to the kind of paternalistic model that we had before. But I, I mean, I can see from both sides, being a physician and a patient. And what I often tell my physician colleagues is that and my husband, who's, who's a, a surgeon, he's very good at his bedside manner, thankfully. But, you know, it's the fact that for, for your physician, for instance, that's probably the thousandth time they're telling someone they have a diagnosis with Parkinson's. But what they forget is that's the first time the patient's hearing it. Right. So you're on very different situations. And, and so I, I do think, though, that that's starting to change now as we're developing more skills in terms of patient-centered care and, and looking at patients' quality of life. 
Well, and, and do doctors rank diseases? And so because it's Parkinson's, it's like, well, it's relief because it's not something worse. So- yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I think that was sort of and people say, well, you have Parkinson's. At least it's not blank. Right. And and that's, you know, somewhat understandable from a physician's point of view, because you're not dealing with something you know acute that needs an immediate attention and you're looking at mortality of your patient. And, you know, those can be obviously more anxiety provoking for the physician as well or more dire for the physician as well. But, yeah, I, I do think there is yeah some of some of that involved as well. Well, because when they when you start talking about the nervous system and something's not working right in your brain, everybody goes to brain tumor, everybody goes to all kinds of crazy things, right? So it does feel, and we experienced that as well. It's like, oh, it's Parkinson's. It's not a brain tumor. It's not this or that. All these other things that they had mentioned. Meanwhile, we had no idea what that meant until we asked questions and started doing our own research. That perspective wasn't really offered by the doctor, but that does seem to be improving because awareness seems to be improving. And I know that there are now training programs that people are doing in hospitals to make sure that people, for instance, in ER centers and whatnot, have a better understanding of Parkinson's and how it may present when people come in. Exactly. And I think patients are also learning to advocate for themselves and not to be necessarily complacent or satisfied with an answer that they don't feel helpful. Let's listen in again to Larry and Kaylin. Let's talk about the pregnancy. What happened? I mean, I know how you got pregnant. I mean, I don't, I don't oh, know exactly okay. how you got Yeah, we have to start there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Um, so I did get pregnant, and you know, it's such a great experience. Um, we had been trying for a while, and things weren't happening. And it was, I think it was the fall of 2018. And I thought, okay, you know, if we're not going to try, then I was like, kind of reached the point of like, maybe I should try medication. My husband and I said, okay, if we're not pregnant by January of 2019, let's try the medication. Um, so Christmas day, uh, we found out that I was pregnant. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. And yeah. then how did the pregnancy go with Parkinson's? Uh, the pregnancy was really difficult. Um, it was uh, I'm going to get a little bit feminine for you for a second. Just give me some way too much TMI. Um, that's so, what that's what that's what people need to hear. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit of background. So, with my my condition, um, every time I cycle through a menstrual cycle, my symptoms change. So, as soon as I menstruate, the symptoms completely drop, almost to like a level two. I was saying like one out of ten, two being like totally manageable. I'm shaking a little bit of my left hand, but I can move around. I've got lots of energy um, and typing and writing is a little bit difficult, but it's manageable. And then uh, I would say, as soon as I'm done ovulating, so on day, cycle day 14, it totally switches. Like, I know what day it is because I'm like, oh, cycle day 14. Here we go. Um, so then it just gets into slowly progressing worse and worse and worse until around... Three days before I menstruate, it's just to the point where, like, I have to be on the couch. I can't do anything. Everything, my whole body is shaking. My rigidity and my my motor skills are just completely gone. Unfortunately, what happened was when I got pregnant, those hormones must have been related to pregnancy. Um, It was like being on the last three days of my cycle for the entire pregnancy. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. 
pregnancy to begin with and giving birth is such a painful and magical ordeal. Yeah. This had to have just been like times 10. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was so, it was so bad. Like I was like, I don't like, what if it doesn't get better? Like I was just absolutely terrified. Um, and terrified of also being a mom and not knowing what to do. And like also having like these panic attacks of how am I going to nurse my daughter? How am I going to change her diaper or pick her up or walk her down the stairs when I can't even get across the room? You had a lot of mind movies going like, yeah, there's like horror films just going through your head. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you get past that? I had to focus on, on her and I had to focus on this really special being that was inside me that wanted to come through and making sure that she was going to be okay. And that was my, that was really my guiding light was that I was bringing us a beautiful human into this world and I need to make sure that she's going to be okay. I I have to believe though, that there were moments where you're like, is this worth it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I had, I had, um, to be honest with you, I had so many dark moments where I was like, I I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I've, I had some, like, I had to, I had to definitely see a therapist because I was having super dark thoughts about wanting to end my life because I thought it would just be easier for everybody else. Um, you know, my husband was so supportive. My close friends were so supportive, um, but it was hard because nobody else around me was going through it but me. Um, so that was, that was really scary. At that point, had you accepted that you had Parkinson's? No, <laughs> I didn't accept that I had Parkinson's until the meds started working until I took medication, uh, three months after, uh, my daughter was born and it started working. I was like, Oh, yeah. And what was the first time taking love, guessing levodopa? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? So it actually didn't, it didn't work for the first month or so because I was taking protein with it. And I just thought, oh, (laughs) Oh, did they forget to tell you about that? Yes. Yes. They're like, you're supposed to eat with it. But I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to have protein with it. So that was interesting. Um, Where I was like, this isn't working. I don't have it. I told you. Um, so, but when it's that, I remember the first day it started working, I had a whole dance party by myself in my office, <laughs> huge dance party for about like three hours. I'm like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Amazing. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious, Sonia, what your reaction is to her story. I mean, I, I feel I feel a lot for her. I, I, I've been through it three times as well since my diagnosis. I was actually pregnant with my first when I was diagnosed with with Parkinson's disease. Um, but, and, and it's interesting because much like all our stories with Parkinson's disease are unique. So are all the women's stories that I hear about their pregnancies. Um, they seem to be unique as well. But it, do, it does show uh, kind of highlights a couple of things. Uh, one is that about um, 50% of women report that their pregnancies, they feel worse during their pregnancies within, with regards to their Parkinson's symptoms. And then majority will get better after the pregnancy, but some kind of keep on getting worse, like that they'll, they'll sort of stabilize at a worse state um, afterwards. Um, so that feeling of, of, of um, 
going downhill during a pregnancy is actually fairly common in women. Um, not taking medications is actually another very common occurrence because a lot of women probably get worse be- during the pregnancies because they stop Parkinson's medications because they're worried about the effects on the fetus and our metabolism probably changes when we're pregnant. So that, you know, might affect our drugs and, and also the stress of being pregnant can also worsen the symptoms as well. So, you know, her, her story kind of illustrates a few of those issues. What were your pregnancies like? Um, mine were, I, I guess, mine weren't, weren't too bad. I mean, I had the regular nausea and stuff that a lot of women who don't have PD also get. Um, I was on no medications for the first, actually, I don't think I took medications for all three, but you have to understand that the understanding of PD and pregnancy was even less 22 years ago. My kids are 22, 20 and, and 16. So when I was going through it, it was a lot less. What I found interesting about my pregnancies is that the response of the physicians. So my first pregnancy, I was just, you know, fall at a normal interval and, and no one was there from except the obstetrician for my first pregnancy. My second pregnancy, everyone was there. The neonatologist, the specialist, you know, everyone was gathered around saying, oh my God, this woman with Parkinson's is delivering. And then the third one, we're back to, uh, she's delivering. We'll have the obstetrician there. So it's very interesting in terms of, of how the physician, because they didn't know, you know, they just don't know what to expect. So reactions can be different depending on on who's involved. And, and was there any, were there any issues? Uh, there were the nine months labor. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that is something we do know. We do know that there doesn't seem to be any difficulty getting pregnant. If you have Parkinson's so fertility issues don't seem to be um, a problem and the pregnancy itself in terms of duration of pregnancy, doesn't seem to, you know, ha- have any effect on, on those sorts of things, nor does it seem to have any effects on the fetus uh, per se. Uh, she she talked about how it didn't work for her. The sentiment didn't work for her for the first month because no one told her not to take it with protein. Right. It seems to be a lot of um, little tricks and tips that don't get passed along until you have a a, a, a group of friends with Parkinson's who can help you through this. Yeah, we learn a lot from each other. That's for sure. Because like, like even like it wasn't really until I had met everybody in person at the WPC, uh, when, when, when my Twitter feed came to life in front of me um, and uh, I, we became, you know, we started talking to each other where we shared experiences and, and, and how to get through certain things. And it's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a whole resource of information out here that the doctors and the nurses and the, and the, the neurologists and the movement disorder specialists, I, I don't even know if they're aware of all the things that we're doing to manage yeah hour to hour. Absolutely. I mean, I think most of them, you know, the, the management tips that I've learned that have worked for me have been through other patients with Parkinson's. And um, yeah, I think the medical community needs to be informed about some of them. Did you have anybody you could turn to and ask questions when you were pregnant with Parkinson's? No, <laughs> no. Challenging. Yeah, it was challenging. And that, and that was because initially, you know, for the first 10 years of my diagnosis, I really didn't become involved with medical, uh, with the Parkinson's community. I had kind of decided I wasn't, I didn't really want to deal with my Parkinson's. So I kind of buried myself in work and other social engagements and family. So, um, yeah, so no, I didn't, unfortunately. But there, but there are, there are more resources available now. I mean, 
you know, now that we have the advent of Facebook and, and, you know, online support systems, it's, it's a lot better for women. Um, getting back to Caitlin's story, immediately after she delivered the baby, she, she was anticipating some relief. Mm -hmm. And yes, that did happen with medication, but not until like six months later. So I thought pregnancy was bad, but, the, you know, add in postpartum depression on top of what you're going through. And then um, every time I would nurse, I would go through this. My whole body would seize and I wouldn't be able to lift her up after nursing. Like it was the oxytocin. I don't know what type of hormone does it, but I couldn't move. Like I couldn't walk across the room. I would literally fall over if I wasn't moving on to anything. So um, my mother-in-law being a great labor and delivery nurse was like, you've got to stop nursing. Like this is just too hard on your body. You can't do it. So that was really hard for me. Um, I stopped nursing my daughter at six weeks. So I know that I got, she got a lot of the, the good colostrum and everything, but it was hard because I felt uh, like I was failing as a parent and that I couldn't do it. You know, um, if she would get up and cry in the night, my husband had to come in and help me and hold her, like get her propped up on me so that I could nurse her. It was just so tricky. Um, even walking down the stairs, like somebody had to carry her down the stairs for me to get down the stairs. So I, I went through a lot of emotions of feeling completely useless and not, and kind of feeling very disconnected from her because I felt like I wasn't doing my job right. I think there's a lot of people with Parkinson's who can relate to feeling like a failed parent. I feel like I let down my son every day. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to get past that. Yeah. Um, now, I do know that he doesn't know anything different. I'm his dad. And he loves me because I'm his dad. Yeah. Bridget loves you because you're her mom and she doesn't yeah. know any different. Yeah. Um, but psychologically, we had parents and we know what they did for us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's hard not to go, but, 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 but. Yeah. So what do you do to help you get through those moments? I know like it's. I definitely have to be okay with the fact that when I'm having a really difficult time, like when I'm, my meds are kicking in, I'm going through that dyskinesia hit. Um, I have to ask for help and I have to time my day around, you know, getting my daughter up and making sure that I can spend time with her and I'm in a good spot and get her off to school. Um, and I have to be okay with, you know, if I'm walking up to the school or not school, but daycare, if I'm dropping off at daycare and I'm having a huge twitch or freaking out, I need to be okay with saying to, you know, the assistants, hey, can you help me? I need some help. Um, and I know that she doesn't know any different, but I'm so terrified. I'm so terrified for her. Like, you know, like what are her friends going to say? Like, what's wrong with your mom? Or, you know, some of the other parents looking at me, like I'm twitching out about all about and I look drunk or something like that it's it's so humiliating and like um really difficult but I have to focus on the acceptance knowing that I have it and being comfortable with explaining to people that I have it because what I've noticed in being able to do that is all of a sudden there's empathy right and empathy comes with support and understanding and I have to be okay with asking for help and being honest with admitting with what I've got. In the beginning, I was like so angry and annoyed with people that would ask if I was okay. Because it just felt like they were taking away my independence. But mm. 
I needed to be okay with saying that I need help. And asking. Oh, it sounds like you've had a good counselor. <laughs> um, I worked on it. I've worked on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely invested the money there. <laughs> yes. What can you say to care partners or partners in Parkinson's as my wife and I like to call it on how they can help? It's such a tricky situation of trying not to smother and trying to be helpful and I can't yeah. take away your pain. Yeah, I think I'm, my husband did a great job. Um, he, he was really amazing to the whole thing. He, um, you know, I think he was really, really good at just like if I needed to have a big cry, he just let me cry. You know, he was just, he was just totally supportive. Um, and, you know, he would consistently acknowledge, you know, like I can't, ex- I can't understand what you're going through, but I'm here with you. I support you. Um you know, like he was, he was totally my target. If I needed to get mad, he would just say, okay, you know, where is this coming from? And we'd be able to talk it through. Um, also foot rubs are really nice. <laughs> I would definitely emphasize the foot rubs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Do you find yourself, you have a shorter temper still? No, I would say that I'm much better. I used to, even before Parkinson's, I was a little spicy. Um, I would say that this has definitely um, taught me to really look within and kind of acknowledge what I'm going through. And that's really also helped with anxiety as well. Like I'm able to go, okay, whoa, I'm feeling anxious. Why am I feeling anxious? There's nothing wrong. Nothing's wrong. It's happening. I'm feeling anxious because, you know, it's the end of the day. And I'm like, you know, like it's allowing me to really question why I'm feeling certain ways and really step back and look at it from above versus within. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, so how far, how, how many years since diagnosis now? Uh, I think it's like seven, seven years. I'm 38 now. Okay. So seven years since diagnosis and how many years since acceptance? Uh, I would say or like six months. <laughs> And here you are talking about it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's sharing your story is is the most powerful advocacy you can do. If we don't share our stories, we'll never raise enough attention to raise yeah. enough money to do enough research to cure it. Yeah, I know. I know. And my husband was kind of asking me, like, you're getting so involved in this. Like, you should we have enough time for this? And I said, you know, like, I've been attacking this this situation, the symptoms, this disease for over you know, like almost a decade, um, seven years. And I, instead of me putting energy into like trying to figure out what's wrong, I'm taking my energy and putting it into this and trying to create more of a platform for everybody to be able to come forward and talk about it and invest in coming up with a way to solve this. I think a lot of care partners ask, are you sure you have enough time for this? <laughs> Does it sound familiar, Rebecca? Quite. Quite. Yes. <laughs> Sonia, I'm guessing Aaron says that to you too. All the time. All the time. He's very good. He, you know, he's very supportive. Why, why do we do so much? For me, the worst thing would be to be idle and, and not engaged, not focused on something. If I had to, if I was too focused on myself, I think I'd drive myself crazy. Right. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I mean, it, for me, it's 
it's the first time I used to think that radio was my purpose. And then now I realize uh, my purpose is I, I, I learned how to do great radio so I could tell people about Parkinson's. That's exactly it. I mean, for the first couple of years after I stopped my clinical practice, I really, really missed it because I couldn't see how I was going to use those skills. But, you know, it really has helped me transition into this sort of Parkinson's world and hopefully bring some of those skills into the work I do now. So it's 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 truly been my life purpose. I agree with you. And sharing your stories and the way that Caitlin is in a vulnerable way and both of you have as well. It's you're right, honey. It's so powerful. That is the easiest way to affect people on multiple levels and really supercharge them for advocacy and then encouraging and kind of giving permission for other people to tell their story as well. Just opens all of that up and there's nothing but good that can come from that. Exactly. Yeah. She, she mentioned that she um, found it difficult uh, and had to learn how to ask for help. And, and I know that experience. I'm, uh, I'm guessing you do too, Sonia. Why do you think it's so hard at first to ask people for help? You know, I've given a lot of thought because I still have a hard time asking for help. And, uh, and, and it's probably been to my downfall in some ways, but for me, it's almost been a coping mechanism in some ways because that stubbornness I feel has kind of got me through the last 22 years in some way, shape or form. But I think the problem with this disease is that, you know, like my husband used to say, oh, I can't wait to retire. You know, you're lucky you don't have to do it. You can follow what you want to do in terms of your life purpose. But for me, it's like, oh, I didn't have a choice. And that lack of choice is what the issue is. It's not that I had to stop working, but if I'd chosen to stop, that was different, but this disease chose for me. And that was a difficult part. So just like, you know, asking for help, if I can't open a pickle jar, it's not, I'm not asking for help because I can't open the pickle jar. I'm, I don't want to have to ask. for help. So I think that kind of, you know, acceptance is, it's a difficult one. And I'm, I mean, although obviously accepted my disease, it took about 10 years, but I did that acceptance of that having to ask for help, which, you know, isn't, is, is, is part of this is, has been difficult still for me. When it's so difficult for us to ask for help and Rebecca, I'd like to hear from the care partner perspective of it's probably hard for you to see a struggle and know when to step in. During Caitlin's story, I definitely identified with her husband in that situation where she was acknowledging that he struggled a little bit and seemed to find some sort of balance of when to intervene and when to offer help and when to let you struggle a little bit. And and that's something that is a constant negotiation as a care partner and relearning and unlearning how to communicate in that in that way about help and when I need to step in and offer help because it looked like you were struggling to, that's, it's a challenging balance for sure. And I can imagine that during a pregnancy, when you're thinking about your whole family in this being, right. And just kind of facing the, the additional stress of impending parenthood, that that would be, um, that would ratchet everything, everything up a bit. The other aspect that um, that I want to acknowledge on that, too, is that care partners often have a lot of empathy for the person with Parkinson's struggling to ask for help because we're in a situation, too, where it's difficult to ask for help because we're 
in some ways the person who's supposed to be in charge or the person who has things covered and is aware of all the details and juggling and you know spinning the plates so ask us asking for help because we're the ones who you would come to for help most likely at least the first level of help um that is that is a struggle as well because we're not supposed to need help right your ego tells you we're the ones in charge we're the ones who have a fully functioning brain and can kind of manage all of these things and that's our job and we embrace it and then you get to those days where you're like I just can't do it on my own I have to I have to have help and that's a that's a a barrier to to cross and one that I know I struggle with and I know a lot of care partners struggle with that uh, and as with everybody with Parkinson's, if you met one person who is YOPD who has given birth, you've met one person with YOPD who has given birth. Uh, every experience is unique. Um, and, and before we, uh, you know, go, I want to introduce you to one more person, Paula Selly. Paula uh, was born in Ecuador and diagnosed at the age of twelve. Uh, she has since moved to the U.S. and at some point, uh, she had asked her doctor early on about the ability to get pregnant and to give birth. I, when my daughter in Ecuador, when I got married, when before I, got, I was getting married, I asked my daughter if I could have family, to have babies. And he said no. So we, when I came, when I got married, we decided to go to the doctor here in Texas and ask him if I could be pregnant. And he said, yeah, you can do everything. You just have to let me know and we can decrease your medication and you will be all right. So apart from the amantadine, I take out all the amantadine and I was in the same dosage of cinnamon and mirapex and my pregnancy was perfect. I mean, if you read a what to step book and you said, this is going to happen to you this day, that was happening to me. It was a really good pre- I was considered a high-risk pregnancy but because of my Parkinson's, but apart from that, it was perfect. Even I feel, I didn't feel um, miskinetic or rather bradyskinetic. I think the hormones levels, the change of the hormones helped me a lot. Mm. At the end of the pregnancy, I started having panic attacks because it was starting to close to the, to the blue date. But apart from that, it was perfect pregnancy. And when my son, the day my son was born, I didn't do the medication for two days. Wait, you just, you just high on dopamine? I don't know. I think maybe because the hormone levels were, I mean, help, it helped. I don't know. <laughs> After the hormones came back to their own regular level, I started taking on the medication. Have you ever heard that, Sonia, where somebody has so much hormones flowing at the right levels after pregnancy that they don't need their medicine for two days? Well, no, I haven't heard that before, but it's very interesting. I'm just trying to picture what the hormones are doing during those first postpartum days that would cause that. But the one thing I wanted to, I couldn't quite make out what medication she was taking during pregnancy. Cinnamet and Mirapax. Okay. I mean, we know that levodopa is pretty safe during pregnancy because that's been the one that's most extensively um, been studied in and documented. Um, but other dopamine agonists and MAOB inhibitors and that sort of thing, we don't have really sufficient data 
Um, they, the took one, her off, they took her off amantadine. Yeah, amantadine has evidence of, of potential to harm to the fetus. Um, and that, that's definitely not recommended during pregnancy. But it is possible to take levodopa for sure. Um, and um, Consult with your doctor first. <laughs> and, then, and then the fact that the, the, the doctor in Ecuador was like, oh, no, you can't get pregnant. Uh, it, yeah. it goes to the idea, and this is a PD Avengers thing, we, we, we need to get the information about Parkinson's into the right hands around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a big here. problem. It, it is. It is. Absolutely. Well, and I've got to imagine that it's even worse for women and women, especially women who are pregnant. Again, a really small percentage of people with PD. And so if there isn't a lot of information here in North America, then in other countries, it's got to be very challenging. Paula's kids are now eight and 12, and she's Mm -hmm. been living with PD for over a quarter century. She's nearly 40. And Parkinson's is really taking hold. Uh, She talked about how sometimes she and her kids have to reverse their roles, and they end up helping her. Lately, um, I start when I have stiffness. I can I cannot walk, so I have to throw myself to the ground and start like crawling or doing like a snake to try to get one place to another. It takes me like ages from here to there, from here to to the wall because I cannot. Walk. Wait, let's back back up. When you stiff enough, you have to get on the floor and snake to where you want to go. Yeah. And how long does it would it take you to get from where you are to another room? Like, if I well, that that's why I don't do it. You see my 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 muscles. That's because I try to do it with my my arms, but not because I'm doing push-ups or I'm doing anything. So it takes me like what a regular person would take. Let's say one second. It will take me like ten minutes. Oh my gosh! What, what do your kids think of that? Um, last the last the, the day after the before yesterday, I was feeling because he was really hot right now, so I didn't know I was dehydrated. I need a lot of water. So I felt really stiff, and my husband was downstairs. And I was just crying because it hurt, it really hurts. And my son says, "Why are you crying?" They know already. But mom, are you okay? And I said, "Yes." Why are you crying? And I said, "Because I felt useless." And I says, "We are here for you, mom. You need to feel useless. We can help you and anything." So I feel that um, they, I mean, they helped me, but I, I feel like I need to be good for them. Because they're still little, but I, I think they and they 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 didn't show me that they were worried. But when they left me in my room, they went back up to their room and they started crying. And my other son came back and said, "Are you okay, mom?" Elias went. My my younger son, Elias came up crying. And I said, "Why?" And she said, "Because you are crying." So I know they realize I'm gonna be every day worse. So they, they have, they suffer. That's tough. And so that's the problem with this damn disease is that it's degenerative. And so even if the pregnancy is perfect, it doesn't mean that 
motherhood's going to be the easy go. No, that's absolutely true. And uh, I think, you know, Parkinson's isn't just our disease, it's a family disease, affects the whole family unit, particularly those that are most vulnerable, which are our kids, really. Your kids are now grown and, you know, they, they don't know you any different than having Parkinson's, but how do you think it impacted them? You know, I, I've often thought about this through the last 22 years since the birth of my first. And I, I was really scared initially because I thought, you know, I don't want them to have to deal with the stress of just regular stress that you experience during childhood and adolescence and then add me into the mix on top of that and cause them more stress. I mean, I feel like as a parent, my duty was to provide them less stress and make life easier for them. So I was really worried about that. But what I did notice, and I still notice today, is that this whole experience has taught them a lot. You know, every every moment can be a teaching or learning experience. And it's taught them um, empathy. It's taught them compassion. It's taught them the importance of charity. But most importantly, it's taught them that life isn't perfect. And, you know, you have to be willing and able to face the challenges that life brings. And that's really what's going to define you is your ability to persevere and 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 succeed despite the challenges. And so, you know, in that way, it's it's been a blessing in some ways. Uh, I think they've really learned from it. And a lot depends on how you approach it as a parent as well. And, and you have to be comfortable with it yourself. You have to come to a level of acceptance um, yourself before you can impart that to your kids. What an amazing lesson in resilience so early in life, right? Watching you as a great model and our son watching Larry and us being really vulnerable about that, I, I, with all of the doubt and fears that I have about it, you're absolutely right. Like we're just at the ver- in the very first stages of it. It just seems like such an amazing, intense, but really important lesson that will benefit them to have that resilience and understand what challenges can be presented in even the most extreme cases and and move forward and make a positive effect on the world. You guys are great models in that way. And so are our partners. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, and, and I think both these women, Caitlin and Paula, are showing tremendous strength. I mean, Caitlin has uh, hidden her diagnosis for seven years, and Paula has not shared her stories for over 25 years. Um, and now they're doing the PD community a great service by sharing their stories. And, and Paula told me that she wanted to speak up now so she can help other teens with PD. Now, I think about that. Like, there, and I, I know, like, Matt Eagles was diagnosed at eight. I've know, I've, there's a, a friend of mine named Hillary who's diagnosed at 11 um and so um the, the, it happens it's a, that's called an adolescent onset is that correct that's right yeah um and so she wants to help other teens with aopd and wants some more research into what's happening with women who have pd and she believes the secret to solving pd may be hidden in hormones in my defense so i believe there is a way that hormones because every Every well, in, in one, one, in the one in first of all, every every monthly when I have my monthly hormones change, the symptoms get really worse. So I believe that maybe there's a way to treat with hormones. Because um, as I said, when I was when I got birth with my sons, I didn't take the medication for two days, complete anything. And I thought, well, this 
cutting back, cutting giving back the babies never. They changed my my life and get rid of Parkinson. But uh, I think uh, everyone needs to know that maybe it's a possible treatment with hormones or maybe it's a cure. Because you never know. I when I have my monthly cycle, I feel the worst. I got, that's when I cannot do anything. I'm a, a woman right now. I don't want to end up an old woman without trying to do anything. Because I, I was a teenager and a young woman, and I'm like, oh, almost 40. So soon I'm going to be an old woman, and nobody will take take attention with what I have had all my life. So I think it's important to people to know that Parkinson's also can be uh, diagnosed in young young people, that maybe the progression is slow, but at the end it's the same progression. So they, they can do something about it, and it, it could be a research in that, in that kind of people. There is growing interest in the research community of exploring, especially the disease-modifying effects of estrogen, but we're really still far away from actually understanding what underlies the differences between men and women. Um, the areas of uncertainty go from what role does estrogen play and why are there gender differences? What are the gender differences exactly in symptoms and presentation? Why we respond differently to medication? The problem is the studies so far have really had small samples and lacked good quality randomized controlled trials, sort of the gold standard of, of, of especially in terms of medication differences. And we've also relied a lot on retrospective data, so patient recalling their symptoms and experiences instead of prospective data where we're studying a cohort as they move along. So, you know, it's growing and we need it. We need especially a large prospective trial and, and that's, that's starting to happen. So we're getting there. We're just not there yet. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today. It's uh, really a treat to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for all the advocacy work that you're doing. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> <laughs> this is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Rob Johnston. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's? You are not alone. Parkinson.ca. And be sure to check out their No Matter What campaign for April Parkinson's Awareness Month. Thanks also to our promotional partners. PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, are partners and friends standing together to demand change in how the disease is seen and treated. Join us now at pdavengers.com. We are sending red letters to the White House asking the UN to recognize World Parkinson Day and developing working committees on many of the PD topics that need addressed, including women and PD. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at michaeljfox.org. He's a pretty good uh, podcast. Yeah, he, he does okay. Yeah, he can't even talk right now. Spotlight <laughs> YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And the World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. And the 2021 WPC Virtual. It's in May, everybody. Access amazing talks, including Larry's on how to have a work-life balance. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> we learn through our challenges. Yes. Go to WPC2022.org for details. 
Tickets are only $25. Register today. And thank you, 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 and you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to the podcast. When you subscribe, and it's free, uh, it just comes straight into your phone or right into your computer. So uh, you don't even have to think about downloading it. It's just there when you wake up in the morning. Uh, and also, while you're there, um, subscribing, uh, give the show like a five-star rating. And then when you comment, say nice things about us. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. And uh, since it's Parkinson's Awareness Month... I recommend that you email everybody in your email address a link to the podcast. Uh, They will not be annoyed at all. (laughs) I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) Just tell them it's it's World Parkinson's. Larry told me to do this. It's all his fault. (laughs) It's not spam. It's a podcast. (laughs) Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.